0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Aslan Hunter, author of The Certainties, which is a finalist for the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Instead of me reading her bio, I thought I'd let Aslan introduce herself.
1: I am someone who um, I've always been interested in language and in writing. And, um, you know, I'm really interested in um, the past and history. And in speaking crucially, you know, I was I was talking, uh, I think, with my boyfriend the other day and, and I was <laughs> saying like how bad I am at small talk. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'm someone who has a writer's disposition and a writer's curiosity. And I feel very lucky and fortunate that I found my way, you know, was a high school dropout, I'm so lucky I found my way to writing and to having good teachers and mentors and uh, living somewhere where that that kind of calling is um supported i'm a widow uh, my husband of 25 years uh who the book is the certainties is dedicated to he died two and a half years ago so that's a big part of who i am right now um and i yeah i have a lot of dogs <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe we'll hear them in in the podcast yeah yeah so i mean i guess i'm i'm those those i'm those things and then like everyone else you know i'm a uh, someone who's struggling to not strive so much you know I think these are strange times we're living in and uh, yeah, it's it's allowing so many people to revision um, the way they see the world and themselves and our work and our interactions and our communities and um, our philanthropy and all that other stuff so yeah I'm someone who's probably in the the existential struggle uh, (laughs) that is known as the pandemic
0: now remember back to the before Before face masks and physical distancing and copious amounts of hand sanitizer. Remember dinner parties or even corporate retreats in person? And someone would offer up an icebreaker? Well, I've created my own kind of icebreaker and have been asking this year's finalists if they could be a character in a book, who would they be? Here's what Aslan said.
1: Um, oh, it's maybe not very flattering, but you have to go with what comes to you, don't you? You can't modify and then pick something cooler or sexier. Oh God, I went with Jane Eyre. <laughs> and, uh, I think it's because I've spent a lot of time in, in the Bronte, um, imagination in my academic work, um, and in their house in the real world. And, um, yeah, I, you know, she's, she's, um, a spiritualist and she's very strong there's this wonderful um edit that um charlotte bronte did in jane eyre where she's describing jane and she originally in the, on the manuscript said um should and then she crossed it out and then underneath that she'd written could and then crossed that out, and then wrote "would," and I just thought, "What a feminist!" You know, she's gone from like that obligation we have to behave a certain way to the option of behaving a certain way to the intentionality. And um, so I do, I do love uh, Jane Aaron and I am um, a romantic. Once I, I'm cousins with um, Alice Monroe, and we were in a car together once, and she uh, loves um, uh, Weathering Heights. And so she is an Emily Bronte person and I am a Charlotte Bronte person which means I'm repressed and she's cool so <laughs> I, was just, I was just like yeah you chose the wild Bronte way, way, way to go
0: in my conversation with Aslyn we'll talk about her beautiful book The Certainties which blends the stories and worlds and times of an unnamed male protagonist and Pia Pia and the man meet just briefly, but their lives become forever connected. To start off our conversation, Aslan reads a little from the Certainties.
1: Okay, um, so I think what I'll do is I'll read from the very beginning of the novel, and then um, skip through the, there's um, a number of sections that go back and forth, I'm going to skip through um, the middle part of the first section, so we'll go from the very beginning of the first section to kind of the end, but there's a little bit of a link. Um, what do you need to know? Uh, my protagonist, unnamed uh, protagonist, is a fifty-year-old um, German-born man who's living uh, was living in France in 1940 uh, when Lexode, the major exodus when the Germans came into uh, France and into Paris, he was part of this major exodus, um, h- historical, uh, uh, truthful exodus out of France down down south of Paris, and um, he eventually finds himself. Uh, in Spain stuck um, trying to get out and um, the Spanish authorities are threatening to turn him around. So he's under house arrest when we begin the book. All right. I stand on my hotel balcony and look to the sea and to the sky's unbridled light. On the beach below the gulls thrash and squawk a vagrant scrounges for cigarette stubs. As I watch him, the same thought circles. When we are dead, we will not know our nations. The vagrant crouches in his baggy trousers, sweeps the pebbles with the side of his hand and pockets what he finds there. His hair is thin and patchy and he scratches at it frequently. For an hour, I've watched him tread barefoot, back and forth across the short stretch of beach. His feet have given me ample pause as I've been up since dawn, trying to decide if I'd prefer to die with my shoes on or off. Sometime around seven, the hotel keeper dropped a breakfast tray outside my door. I can imagine the ants I saw on the ground floor of the hotel tipping their antennae toward the heel of bread and drizzle of oil. The old woman is long past apologizing for the weak tea or the size of the rations. Her sort is one we keep encountering, wary of us, of what trouble we might bring, even as she stuffs the crumpled pesetas we give her in a tin. The breeze coming in off the sea is warm and fresh. Already in the morning light, a man and a woman with skin still sun-kissed from summer wade out into the bay she's wearing a bright yellow swimming costume her dark hair tied in a plait beyond them a sailboat lulls gently in the harbor as if the world were not in tatters as if this were simply another September day further out again past the twin points of the headland a merchant ship steams south heading toward Barcelona or perhaps as far as Tangier. My death in front of me as I stand here, as palpable as that boat cutting through the water. And then I'll just skip to the end of the section. The air is strange this morning. The swimmers are not staying in the water as long as one would expect, as if the sea doesn't agree with them, as if a storm is coming. It is odd to be thinking about this now, but it occurs to me that I've fallen in love hundreds of times. I've fallen in love with a street sweeper moving his arms as if he's conducting, with a 14-year-old soprano and Saint-Chapelle singing for au bord de l'eau, with a prostitute leaning against a wall in Pigalle, her eyes closed as if no one can touch her. I have fallen in love again and again with my mother, whose arms encircled me during the questioning years of my youth, and Leonie, who opened her legs for me, and Artun, who gave me his notes to study when I veered off course in our last year of university to obsess over the social meaning of bridges. I have fallen in love with a pigeon whose wing was broken and who fought off the crow who tried to steal the bread I dropped for her near my customary bench in Arcanplatz. I fell in love just yesterday with the unconditionally curious expression on a five-year-old's face, a child wide-eyed and happy, toddling down a passage in uncertain times. And yet I can feel all that willingness to love the world ebb in me now. This is what I know from paintings and books and from being alive at a time when the world is turning inside out, the present gutted like a farmyard animal. Something must survive. I think it will be you, Pia, and your mother in that future world, in that cleft in time. Your mother will make and spin a web of life for herself and you will be reared in it, and you will be a survivor too. Already I can see you on the island you will come to call home, as sure as I can see my hand on this balcony railing, the scuffed toes of the shoes I've been debating since sunrise. It will be windy where you are just as it's becoming windy here. You will have fallen asleep in a room with heavy curtains and a bedside clock insistent in its ticking. The sound of the wind will take up residence in your dreams forcing you to shout across the distance between you and your mother who is standing on the other side of a plaza in her good green dress. It's your mother's dark eyes that I see in yours and those same arched eyebrows as if always questioning. Even as an adult, your hair will be short, boyish. There will be a scar on your left arm, a beige moon against your skin. And so we are here in your room on the island in the world that is to come, waiting for daylight, waiting for you to open your eyes and move through that stretch between sleep and wakefulness, when it's easy to forget what country you live in or if you are a child again or the grown-up you've become. My life ending as yours begins the sky between us, a wild and deepening blue.
0: Thank you. So you mentioned uh, sassy female characters and you, from what you read, you introduced somewhat sassy female character. Pia's got some sass to her. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the two characters that kind of moved the certainties forward and how those two characters came
1: to you. So I knew my original intention conceptually was I thought I wanna write a love story between two characters who never meet. So it was like, how do they, like I, I had this idea that um, he would have left some form of written document and she would have left some form of audio tape. And then the some other character would unite them in such a way that it actually formed this living life story, which it was, seems ridiculously difficult to do. And in fact was. And then what I realized was that really Love is in, relationships are based on connection, and so that there had to be even if I wanted to to write this conceit, there had to be a connection. So I, I've got a character who's fifty years old, my unnamed um, uh, you know uh, refugee character who's come coming during Lexode, and um, he's sitting in uh, Spain contemplating suicide, and a five year old girl um, stops at his t- cafe table, and they have just this one moment of um, connection where they see each other. And he feels that her world is opening up. Her whole life is before her and he feels this strong sense of her. And she sees him and he feels seen. And um, that's it for them for, for the encounter they have uh, here. And so half the novel tracks his house arrest in, in the um, hotel in um, Port Bou, which is in the north of Spain, just over the border, but they've climbed illegally over the Pyrenees. And half of the novel is her in the future, roughly his age, working as a sous chef on an Atlantic island. And so, um, in that relationship, they're they're kind of co-creating each other, which I think is what we do in even in real life relationships, right? We we try to guess who the other person is, why they do what they do. So there's this kind of um, shared imagining or remembering of each other that uh, informs the whole book. Yeah, and and I think she is sassy. I I like her.
0: Yeah, I I did too, and I I don't know. It's it's funny because I read the book I I'll, the first time. Uh, probably just after it came out. So as I was preparing for to chat with you, for some reason, I only remembered Pia's story. It was really strange. And then when as I was rereading it, I was like, oh, how did I forget this whole other part of the book? But there must have been something about her that I really connected to. But my next question for you is around the time period and why you were so interested in telling this story at that time period and how that, that came about for you.
1: Yeah, I, you know, the part of the novel's impulse was looking at the, the current refugee crisis. And, as, and in particular, I was writing when the exodus out of Syria and the bombings and people were getting on the boats and, um, you know, that, that imagery uh, was so, God, I don't know, for so many of us, if I can speak for more, for me, I should say then. It, it was a uh, gutting imagery to see. I read all the articles that that came across because I didn't want to look away from this, but I felt so helpless um, and so powerless. I felt so distant. Eventually uh, a group of friends, uh, we privately sponsored a family who'd had to escape Damascus uh, and who were living in Turkey at the time. So we privately sponsored a, a family to come live here in British Columbia and they've done amazingly well. It's, I guess it's like, wow. Four years ago now five years probably and um yeah so i I wanted to talk about what it is to be homeless and what it is also to observe things happening to people and to feel powerless to help and also that feeling of um you know the more i started reading about the historical migration out of uh, paris just when you can't trust people right not only are you you know um homeless and then stateless as my character is, but you are um, you, it's just on a cell, it's, it's a little bit like what people have started to talk about on at COVID where it's just on a cellular level, we're dialed differently now, right? Or, or especially in the beginning of, of the pandemic. But I, I knew I had no right and no authority to talk about what was happening in, you know, the 2008, nine, 10, whatever. So I thought, well, how, where can I look to find where I can read first firsthand accounts of a migration. And uh, this is actually, so in my PhD, I'd looked at Walter Benjamin, his work, and oh my God, I loved it so much. He was a German philosopher and literary critic, a translator of Proust, a brilliant thinker. And he uh, had to leave Paris, like my character did, and also escaped illegally, ended up in Spain, and then ended up contemplating suicide in a hotel in Port Buh. So was, I was really fascinated by Benjamin's life and I didn't want to tread too closely to him. I wanted to be able to have my freedom, but I used his experience and a lot of firsthand accounts of that exodus because I felt like it, it, to write about anything else for me at that time when this was happening around us. I mean, when it's still happening, when it's on and on and on, you know, I, th- I thought I have to I have to at least, I don't know, what I, I, I want to say something true, but that I want to, I want to feel it more than I do when I read the newspaper. And so to feel it is to really spend time imagining through your characters, right? What it feels like to be stateless and homeless and so on. Yeah,
0: so. Yeah, I thought Well, something that came up for me was this kind of state of limbo that both the, the unnamed male character and Pia seem to kind of be living in where they, he feels he's obviously very detached from what's happening from him, both in like being able to live somewhere and to feel rooted, but also Pia has that sense about her too, like she's not really settling. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about that and that that feeling of limbo, I, maybe it comes from a place of loss and grief and, and, and maybe you can speak to that a bit too, but it definitely felt like there was this, they were kind of floating in this space in between.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, she so she would have been born in uh, 30, 1935 uh, in Spain. So in this awfulness of the Spanish Civil War, which I also spent a lot of time reading firsthand accounts about in novels and uh, You know, books of history, and um, and I I just think you can't, as a child, move through a world where you know there's still corruption and people are starving, and there's you know bullet holes and you know in the buildings. I think so. She's a child of trauma. You know, their house uh, is raided one night, and she has to hide in the closet. Um, And her and and so I think she's stricken. And so I think there was an element for both of those characters of you can't unsee what you have seen. So how do you, I mean, integrate that and move forward? Romeo Dalier, I saw him speak when I was working on the book and he said, you, know, you walk into a room one person and then you see something and you walk out of it a different person. And that happens you know, to my, my um, uh, refugee protagonist. And, but I think that Pia is also piecing together this collage of things that she understood one way when she was a child and now she understands um, differently. I, had a, I have a friend, um, but when I was writing the novel, um, he and I had a falling out. And he was working um, uh, in the, as a you know, representing Canada, he's a military person. And he was working in so many hotspots and being moved around to, to different hotspots. And so here I am at my desk writing a novel about people seeing things and whatnot. And he was out there putting his life on the line. He got shot, you know, at doing all this work for us as Canadians. And I felt this real, uh, oh, there was a real discrepancy. Like I was like, who am I to write? Like, what am I doing? God, I'm sitting here, you know, I'm reading this stuff. I'm trying to filter it into something. I'm trying to speak where's my authority. But then I thought he's, he's not going to write a book, you know? So why don't I do that work of compiling and, and reading about, about those things. So in, in a strange way, I mean, for so many of us, even though he was the actor in the drama of, you know, again, he stood on one of those beaches, you know, where the bodies came in. So he was in those places. He, what can he do with that? So in, in some way we're all in limbo, right? Even if we're an actor in the drama, like he is, I mean, he has PTSD, right? He struggled with what he's seen. And so, if my, my limbo was sitting at the desk and being imaginative and doing historical research, then my action was writing the book. So in a, in a strange way, I think limbo is part of um, dis-ease, you know, like that, that the dis-ease of having been active and not having anything to do with it. No one to tell, no, no way to communicate it or, ha- or being in limbo and then finally manifesting a book that at least expresses your grief and your sadness and all the other stuff that the writer puts in there so it's it's limbo is part of i guess it's part of the call to action
0: yeah and i think it was interesting too like in that limbo this This detachment that both um, the main character and Pia had from what was happening around it, it felt like they couldn't, because the main character didn't obviously know what was going to happen to him next. And he had, you know, his option, he was considering suicide, but other than that, it seemed fairly, fairly uncertain for him. And then for Pia, it was kind of that same thing. She had her job, she had the builder, but there was kind of like an escape route at all times too. And I thought that was so interesting, especially for people who do deal with trauma because there often is that like they need to be one step removed.
1: I think, too, about, um, you know, I taught a class at a KPU called Writing as Witness, where I had my students, you know, focus on witnessing a landscape, witnessing an animal, um, witnessing an event, and, and not in a journalistic uh, kind of way. And we were talking about Tiananmen Square and looking at, you know, um, firsthand accounts and looking at some of the visual um imagery from Tiananmen Square and uh, Charlie Foran, who um, is an amazing Canadian writer, had, um, we were using one of his articles and he'd kindly um, extrapolated a bit on the article for me and how it was written because, you know, as writers we always want to get into the how. And he said, you know, he said, remember this was an analog time you know, nobody at one end of Tiananmen Square could mobile phone somebody at the other end of Tiananmen Square and say, this is what's happening. And he was talking about the chaos and, and the, the mix of ideologies and the right hand and the left hand didn't know. And so I've always been interested. It's, I, it's not that I think of myself as a historical novelist or a f- historical fiction writer, but I am interested in trying to recapture the, ang- I think there are anxieties about our technology and how connected we are. But part of the fascination for me about working on this book was thinking about what is it like for people on the ground escaping Paris and one of the largest mass migrations in human history with no access to a radio, to television, to news, to like, you know, a a GPS system that says, if you turn left, there will be German snipers, you know. So I'm very interested in that kind of existence which they wouldn't have thought about in as limbo but in some way i think we with our super technological you know oh did i just feel an earthquake google it yes it was a 4.2 it was three mile you know I like this immediacy we have and so i think again they didn't see it as limbo it was just the world they knew but it seems to me in 2021 like such a floundering to be in these large situations was so with just the opinions of the people on either side of you, which are also opinions because they're not, you know, one of the accounts of the exodus was, you know, in the same breath, one person would say the Germans are retreating and then somebody else would say the Germans are advancing. And so how do you, you know, like cattle, how do you move? How do you know what's safe and where to go?
0: Yeah. That's something I think a lot about too, with, as you are saying the technology and the immediacy it's, you know, that limbo created just by the gap in time needed to relay that information. You know, I, I write a lot about letter writing and and how that's so different from how we correspond now. And, you know, people wrote love letters to their, to their husbands and wives. And that's such a lost art now. We'd send, you know, three letter text messages or an emoji now. <laughs> and it's just such a different detachment. I think we, I have this book of uh, love letters and it's just, you know, the outpouring of emotion because people really think about it when you're really crafting by hand and you never know where it's going to end up.
1: Yeah, there's something. I also love letters. We are the, like love letters and love letters. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we are. Yeah, there's something. um. You know, when I was doing my PhD, I did a lot of work on handwriting and the affect of seeing the handwriting of, of someone famous, like in the case of the Victorian writers I was studying or someone you love. And uh, again, just that the Charlotte Bronte revision in Jane Eyre, just that you can see the thinking in the strike through of the word and then like you can even see a pause if you really look at handwriting, you can see where the pen pauses, the way the ink sits on the page. I mean, there's just so much affect to to that kind of, yeah, commitment to your thought and the process of moving your hand across the page. Yeah.
0: I wanted to ask you about the title, um, because in the book, uh, it seems like there's a lot of uncertainties in in what's happening to the, these characters. Was the title something you knew from the beginning or was it suggested to you along the way?
1: No, the original um, title was uh, For Those in Peril on the Sea, For Those in Peril on the Sea, which is a famous sea shanty, a British um, sea shanty and um yeah, and I thought, I liked the kind of that it signaled a narrator, you know what I mean? And that the subjects would be down below. And it was also the name of um, a beautiful art installation that, I, that uh, was in Edinburgh. Um, it was in a few locations. A Scottish installation artist whose name might come to me, Hugh might come to me in a second anyways it was called for those in peril on the sea and it was he hung boats from a cathedral ceiling miniature replicas and it it looked when you looked up at all the bottoms of these fishing boats or kind of different kinds of boats schooner boats whatever obviously my technical boat skills are low (laughs) um you know rowboats you could you could see and it was so evocative of the migrant crisis because it just felt so when you when you looked up it just felt um You were distant from it, but there was a sense of of getting investment, you know, because it was proximal to you, it was above you. It was a really haunted exhibition. And so I thought, okay, for those in peril on the sea. But then, and I thought, this is the only title I've ever come up with for any book that I will get to keep all the way through. And then right before publication, I was at my editor's house and she said, we need to talk about the title. And I am like, no, (laughs) she said, she said, well, there's a problem. And I'm like, no, and she said, the problem is that at no point in the novel is anyone actually in peril on the sea. They are in peril as seen from a beach, but they're not in peril technically on the sea. And I was just like, oh my God. So we had to, uh, I spent a long time trying to find another title and uh, that um, uh, epigraph at the beginning of the book by Dermot Healy, who was um, is one of my favorite writers, was one of my favorite writers and, and a mentor to me. I'd use this also in my last book of poetry as the epigraph and it's go now beside the uncertainties in black veils stand the certainties and so I I thought okay yeah that's I mean certainties in black veils you know how clever that that you know so again it's a gently ironic um title and then I just noticed how many times the idea of certainty appeared in the book there are three or four times that had already you know been written in there where that desire for certainty to to you know to live or die is the ultimate question right? that desire to know what one should do yeah
0: I was also curious about foxes because I I believe you have a book of poetry with the fox on the cover right (laughs) and there's a fox on the cover of this book too so is there what is it about foxes
1: yeah, you know, I am. Um, I in linger still, which was the last book of poetry. Um, I had a poem about a fox. I'm really interested in foxes. And um, and so uh, the uh, Andrew Steves at Gaspar Press wonderfully got Wesley Bates, who's um, a woodcut. He's an artist, a draw uh, illustrator. He, Wesley Bates did an original Lingering Fox for me for the cover of Linger Still. And then, you know, it's, Gaspar Press makes such beautiful books. And, uh, and then Kelly Hill, who was the book designer for The Certainties, had never seen that. So there were foxes, you know, there are a few references to foxes in the certainties, but she didn't know. And so this was the book design that came forward. And I'm like, I'm so foxy. (laughs) Foxes foxes all the time. But, um, you know, the foxes, I think part of that project, um, you know, and I I feel, I guess, uh, self conscious talking about this, but you know, Alice Munro and I come from the same Scottish stock uh, in the Ettrick Valley of Scotland, the Laid Laws. And um, they are writers in, in that line of family, oral, oral tellers as well. And, uh, you know, that family history uh, of the Laid Laws coming to Canada is very fascinating. It's very well documented, thanks to different members of the various families. And um, Alice's father, uh, on that side of the family, they had a fox farm. And uh, I'm very uh, sensitive uh, person around animals because I have the luxury of being able to be sensitive around the animal question, right? I can choose to not eat meat, etc. And so I think I wanted to free the foxes. Like I'm very aware that on all sides of my family, animal husbandry kept, you know, my families alive, right? We were sheep farmers, we... Uh, you know, this, the Irish side were farmers, but they kept animals. And so I wanted somehow to have the idea of, of you know, foxes escaping, I think, just to kind of place myself in, the, in that um, lineage. Yeah, Alice would not like that. <laughs> and it's not a criticism. It's just it was it was a call to do, you know, again, I, I, I critique no one. For choices that they make, but I just, it was something I wanted to do. I feel like part of my, you know, in the certainties, I never use it for an animal. So I either gender the animal or I say the mouse is the mouse. I I think, you know, as the climate crisis continues, and as we are learning that it's imperative to be better custodians on this earth for, you know, the survival of our species and every species, I think... You know how we dialogue about animals um you know and i'm speaking now when i say we like in particular in the west uh, where where there's a more opportunity to um change our practices or be better custodians so it, that's part of um, part of my project
0: thanks so much to aslin for being on writing the coast and thanks as always to you for listening and subscribing to writing the coast if you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about the shortlisted authors and titles, as well as details about upcoming events like our storied series and our BC Bookmail project that we're doing with the historic Joy Kagawa House. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Gail Anderson-Dargatz, whose book Ride Home is a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.